people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonakam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Adon, 655. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Harif, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men, men of Beth Asmavah, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Chephirah, and Beeroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Onu, 721. The sons of Sena, 3,930. The priests of the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emmer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodava, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shelem, the sons of Atter, the sons of uh, Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatati, Hatata, the sons of Shubai, 138. The temple servants, uh, the sons of Zeha, uh, the sons of Hasipha, uh, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, uh, the sons of Labana, uh, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, uh, the sons of Nakuda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasea. The sons of Besiah, the sons of Menuhim, the sons of Nephishalim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basleth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sutai, the sons of Sophera, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jael, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokhara, Hazabayim, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Charib, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Delial, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakuda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hubiah, the sons of Hakos, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name, 
These sought their registration among those enrolled in, in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 darics of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 darics of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 darics of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. And we'll end our reading at verse 72. And we'll return to verse 73 later. So let's pause there in God's word. Give God's word its place is our title this morning. And we talk, don't we, about giving someone their place uh, you might give uh, an elderly person uh, 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 or a, a woman with a, with a baby at their place uh, by offering uh, them your seat uh, on, the, on the glider or the bus. You might give uh, the bride and groom uh, their place uh, at a wedding uh, and, and let them have their first dance with no one else grabbing the limelight with their dance moves uh, beside them. At a, at a recent funeral I attended, I was, I was ushered to the front uh, and asked to pray. The minister said he wanted to give me my place. I would have been happy with my place in the pew, but I was able to pray and bring greetings and bring my sympathies to the family. Giving someone their place. It means, of course, doesn't it, that you, that you make room for someone. That you, that you allow yourself to be superseded by someone. Giving someone their place. What about the place of a genealogy? When it comes to the Bible, of course, we have parts that we like to read. Parts that we read over and over at Christmas time. And they'll be back before long, won't they? We're in October now. Gospel accounts that we're, that we're familiar with. At miracles of Jesus, for example. And the New Testament letters that we're familiar with, which seem so much closer to home in terms of where we are in the history of redemption and in the history of the world. So they're easy to read and to understand what's going on. The more dog-eared parts of our Bibles, as I like to call them. But there are other parts of our Bibles that are, well, they're like new, aren't they? Uh, the, the minor prophets, uh, the book of Lamentations, uh, the, the Levitical laws that mostly no longer apply to us, and, and Ezekiel even in all its strangeness. And of course, there are other neglected parts of books that we do use often. I mean, it's very easy to skim over them, isn't there? Like, for example, those genealogies at the start of Matthew and in Luke chapter 3. And the lists of names in Ezra and Nehemiah. And we come to another one this morning. And here we have a, a mention of the, of the book of the genealogy of the people of Jerusalem back there in verse 5. And then we have its contents laid out before us in all 68 verses that we then read. The results of our 2021 census uh, were out last week, 
uh, maybe a little bit before that, and, and that generated some interesting headlines from the uh, statistic uh, analysis and the, and the trends that they were able to, to determine. And this is something akin to that. But perhaps statistics don't get you too excited. That's probably the majority, isn't it? You aren't one of those people who, who've, who've, who've got a subscription to, to ancestry or, or the family tree drawn up in, and in the house somewhere that you can bring out if there's a visitor. Or your DNA hasn't been sent off to find out if you're one-eighth Greek or related to Henry VIII or something like that. That's not you. Horses for courses, eh? But listen to 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in, in righteousness. All scripture. All, of course, meaning all. Referring, of course, initially to all of the Old Testament, and then as it's written down, uh, the New Testament uh, is recognized as apostolic and authoritative, and it's all scripture that Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 3. There's nothing accidental about the contents of your Bible. Nothing accidental. There's purpose and there is intention. And there's purpose and intention on every single page and every single line. There's no, there are no mistakes when it comes to the contents on every sacred page. So basically, that means we're all horses and this is our course. Isn't that right? All of it. What is profitable and what are we taught from a list of returned exiles, you ask? A list virtually identical to the one given in Ezra chapter 2. Well, I want to say to you this morning that genealogies, they are important for taking stock. I hope you can read the PowerPoint just about on the, the screen this morning. They're important for taking stock. Just in the same way that a census enables population analysis and trends, it is being used here by Nehemiah. You see, the wall around the city has, of course, been completed. We saw that in chapter 6. Praise be to God. But the next important task, as we mentioned last time, is the repopulation of the city. So he counts the people. And he counts the priests and the Levites, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the temple servants. And he takes stock, as it were. And he makes use of the book of the genealogy of the first arrivals from Babylon. And you see what he's doing here? Because now, with the information when they first arrived, and the present information right now, he can compare. He can see the changes in the numbers. He can, he can check the direction of travel, so that the people are more and not less. If it's less, well, changes will have to be made and they will have to be made fast. They are important to take for taking stock. They are important for God, secondly. Because, of course, verse 5 tells us who instigated this uh, counting of the people. Verse 5 tells us that God has placed it in Nehemiah's heart to assemble the people and count them by genealogy. Not just to count them, but to count them by genealogy. Because it's important to God. You say, why is that? Well, of course, God has promised to bring blessing to the seed of Abraham. That is the holy seed. And through time, to bless the whole world through the seed of Abraham. But the holy seed of Abraham is important in the Bible. 
In verse 64, there's, a, there's something of an, of an issue, isn't there? Where some who claim to be in the priestly line were found not to be on the list. So they were excluded. They were not to touch the most holy food until a priest had asked God, purity and seed are important to God for those who are in temple service. Thirdly, they're important for land entitlement. In verse 61, there are some who are not in the priesthood, uh, who cannot, but who cannot themselves either prove their ancestry. Why is that an issue? Why is that important? Well, I mean, they're, they're not performing temple duties. Why, why does an ordinary person, as it were, an ordinary member of the people that can't prove their ancestry matter? Well, we read a big list of names, didn't we? But we also read a big list of towns here and there. Each exile has a town. Uh, Each family has land. The land was promised to Abraham and his descendants. And then, of course, they were carried off into exile, the people. And so their their land entitlement, their legitimacy of of membership of the community was, as as returning exiles, was based on their their claim to property that that their families owned before they went to exile. So if you couldn't prove your ancestry, well, then you were in great difficulty, weren't you? Where were you going to live? Where was your land? You were very possibly not part of the community of believers at all. The list of names was important for land entitlement. Also, they're important for prophecy fulfillment. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 promises that the Messiah, of course, would come in as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And it's there in the genealogies of Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. Jesus is, is born in David's line. The stump, the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's so important for the Jews, isn't it? And of course, Matthew knows this. Matthew, as he writes his gospel, has got that Jewish audience primarily in mind. And so what does he do? He puts it right front and center. Genealogy. Jesus. Found in David's line. They are in that sense a a fulfillment of prophecy, aren't they? These genealogies. Also, they are important for historic accuracy. Historical accuracy. Having a list of of names substantiates the Bible's historic accuracy because it gives markers that that can be checked and verified. People who really lived. Real people. And by knowing family histories, we understand that the Bible is not made up of mere parables or parodies of how to live but actual real people. Authentic, historical truth is contained on its pages because these people actually lived. And there was actually a man called Elam who had descendants numbering 1,254, as we read in verse 34. He actually existed. Also, and finally in this part, they are important, these genealogies, because of the stories behind the names. The fact that there were real people that God was interested in shows us that something about the character of God himself. Because God didn't see Israel kind of like vaguely as an inanimate group of people. No, he saw them specifically and with detail. They're not just a statistic, they're people with names. There's nothing detached about these genealogies. They show a God who's involved. The inspired word mentions people by name. Real people with real histories and real futures. God cares about each person and the details of his or her life. And you know what? That means he cares about, he cares about yours and mine. 
Nehemiah chapter 7, like Ezra chapter 2, is part of God's word. It's inspired. It's worthy of our attention. So we should read it with the same importance uh, that we give to the rest of our Bibles. For this is necessary for life and godliness for you and me. For God has revealed and given us everything necessary for life and godliness in these pages. It's there. It reminds us, just as Nehemiah took stock of the state of the believing population, that we need to take stock regularly of how we stand before God as one of his redeemed people. How is your heart leaning these days? Is it Christward or wayward? What's the direction of travel? Is immediate action needed to stop that rot? Or is there something we need to stop today? Or is there something we need to start today? Reminding us that we have an inheritance in the land as God's redeemed people. Our inheritance is in the new heaven and the new earth. That's how we know we're part of his people. Reminding us that the prophets predicted it. It came to be and there are more prophecies yet to be. Reminding us that his word is accurate and trustworthy and true, recording actual events in actual history. Reminding us that God is concerned with with individuals and the events of their lives. We're not incidental to God. As believers, he is a big part of our lives. And so we should give God his place as a big part of our lives. Secondly, this morning, the place of a Bible reading. I want to pick up in Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 73 and read from there down into chapter 8, verse 12. If you return to your Bible with me, please. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73, and reading into into chapter 8. Um, This is what God says. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, 
Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our, to, to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And we'll end our reading at verse 12. As we move on into chapter 8, another book is brought out, isn't it? This time it's not the book of the genealogies, but the book of the law of Moses. This uh, usually refers to the first five books of the Bible, what's sometimes known as the Pentateuch. But probably uh, it, was, um, it was read here in, in only half a day. So we have to probably imagine that it refers to just the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the fifth book of the Bible is referred to in a similar way in a couple of other places. So that's very possible. God's people give this Bible reading its place though, don't they? Notice that to give this book its place, well, they, they, there's, there's four actions here going on, isn't there, in the passage. The first, one, the first one's gathering. Gathering. The people are gathered in verse 1. We're told that. And we're told that they gather in a square at the water gate. This is a, a public area. This is a communal area. This is not the temple, uh, in the precincts of which only men uh, would have been allowed no, this is a gathering that, that enables men and women and, and children of age to be present. All who could understand is the way it's put. Never doubt, brothers and sisters, your need to gather. There is no uh, Jesus and me in the New Testament. There is Jesus and the body. Jesus and the gathered church. And what do they gather for? It's the first day of the seventh month. They're gathered for a festival. That's what's going on here. It's a special day, isn't it? It was a day of rest. Uh, it was a day that was sacred to the Lord. Uh, and that was the day they were gathered to worship with all the people present. I do not uh, believe at Sunday uh, to be a strict Sabbath in the Old Testament model or sense. But it is a special day. It is the day for worship and gathering. Don't let anything get in the way of that. Not sport or leisure, not extra shifts that you don't have to do. Everyone needs a weekend away, but let's not be excessive about it. For you need to gather, don't you? We need to gather. There used to be nothing on on a Sunday. But the temptation to do something else is stronger than ever, isn't it? So we need to, to recognize this and to be strong in our resolve and our need to be together because the temptations are aplenty. We'll talk more about this in chapter 10. But do notice, not only had they gathered, but they'd gathered in unity. 
They are gathered as one man, the Bible says. The last time that phrase gathered as one man was used was in Ezra chapter 3 when the people gathered to rebuild the broken altar. That was their first rebuild before they, before they started on the temple. It speaks about unity, doesn't it? We get the sense of that. They're gathered, all the people, and they're united. It's nice to be together, isn't it? It's nice to see your friends. But they come with one main aim, don't they? Because chiefly and centrally, they come here on a matter of hearing from God's word. It finds its place front and center in their minds as the reason for being there. We are now, you and I, in the main part of our service. The main part being the preaching of God's word. It is surpassed by no other element of our service. It is central. So the next action, in addition to gathering, that we notice is hearing. Hearing. Ezra returns, doesn't he? We haven't heard from him in a while. Where's he been? I don't know. But Ezra returns for the first time in this uh, Nehemiah half of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're treating, if you remember, like one book. It's been nearly 13 years since we've heard about Ezra, but it's the same Ezra because he's referred to as the Ezra the scribe and Ezra the priest. And of course, he's brought back, but brought back with a very important task. The people... The people are clearly hungry for God's book to be heard among them. Well, that's shown here, isn't it, in in three ways. Firstly, notice their desire. Notice that that it's not Ezra wanting to read to the people. Have a look, verse 1. Listen up, people, I want to read from God's God's law to you. No. What does it say? Instead, the people, well, they ask. Rather, they tell, is the way it's put. They tell him to address them. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded to Israel. They instigate this, don't they? They want him to take, they want him to to give God's word its place. They want him to read it. It's like that song that we sing before the sermon sometimes. Show us Christ. O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. That's, that's the congregation, isn't it? Saying to the, the man who's about to open God's word, will you show us Christ? Will you do that? Not, not will you, would you like to do that? Or would you mind terribly doing that? But would you show us Christ? There's, a, there's an instigation there, isn't there? There's, an ins, there's, a, there's a sense of strength in that. We want to we see Christ. Hungry to be fed. Also notice their their attention. We can see their attention there in in verse 3. It wasn't wasn't on what was happening this week at work or the attractive member of the opposite sex in front of them in the crowd or, or that notification that's just pinged on their iPhone. No, it wasn't any of those things. We're told the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Their attention was in the right place. Even though it was a long morning, as we'll see, it was also shown not just in their, in their desire, in their attention, but also in the optics here. You get the sense of that, how things looked, the way they were sort of set up, because a, a raised wooden platform was built, a pulpit of sorts, yes, 
and the, and the word is given its place. It's raised up and important among them. You put the important things high up, don't you? Raised up so everyone could, could see the book with their eyes and also hear because of the, the way the, the, the acoustics would have been that you could hear from on high. This pulpit's wide enough for, for Ezra to, and 13 named others to stand. It's a big structure. There's also the optics of the people, because when God's word is read, they, they stand, don't they? We're told that. And they're standing for six hours. Midday, sorry, daybreak till midday. And notice how they also say words that show where they're, where they're attention is amen amen in verse six that's it is so it is so we are in agreement we're in agreement in other words and they lift their hands and they bow their heads their faces are to the ground they're they're worshiping aren't they that's another optic they're 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 worshiping god whose word is being read they're really hungry to hear aren't they that's hearing the third action that shows the people are giving God's word his, its place is understanding. There are 13 men with um, Ezra on the pulpit, but we also have the mention of 13 further Levites who are moving among the people. And their place is there, verse 7, that they help the people to understand the law. God's word um, is not a magic spell where you... Uh, read a bit uh, where you read the words and maybe you're engaged, maybe you're not engaged in it. Uh, hocus pocus, it works. Blessing comes. Life becomes easy. It's not like that. Now, it's not ordinary. It's no ordinary book. It's, it's special. It's a living word and it's powerful. But it requires something very important. It requires understanding. Isn't that clear here? You, because, of course, you can hear but not understand. You can hear French but not know what the words mean. You could hear words that you know the meaning of individually but put them in a sentence and, well, it's confusing. Sometimes God's word is easy to understand. Thou shalt not murder. It's not difficult to understand that. Make an ark of gopher wood, Noah. That's not difficult to understand what's going on there. But sometimes it's, it's not so easy. Why, why, is, why is Abraham being asked to sacrifice his, his only son? Are we going to be asked to do that? Or why, why are the Hebrew midwives economical with the truth, ninth commandment, at the start of Exodus? Sometimes it's difficult. All of these are contained in the book of the law, of course. So as Ezra reads through, maybe like we do on a Sunday night in our consecutive reading through the New Testament, there are things that are hard to understand. And so the Levites who have been privileged, of course, and been able to set aside time to study this more, more fully, well, they can help the people. And so they do. Understanding is very important in this chapter. How do you know that? Well, because it's repeated again and again. It's very important. If you're reading your Bible and there's something repeated again and again, then God's trying to really emphasize something, isn't he? Verse 2. 
So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. Verse 3, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Verse 7, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 12, right at the end, the people are rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Understanding is key, isn't it? What does that mean, understanding? Look at the important phrase in verse 8, which helps us here. They read from the book of the law and they gave the sense. You see it there? Yes, there's concentration required. There's a careful demeanor required. It's not just automatic, bouncing off the page to you. But we also must understand that there is a spiritual understanding that goes beyond the learning of the meaning of words and concepts or even just being smart and intelligent. That is the sense of that phrase, the sense of it. Forgive me if I'm confusing you, but the sense means the spiritual understanding behind what's going on. You see, that's the true sense of God's word. Because in and of ourselves, we are not able to understand spiritually. We're we're dead in that regard. Ephesians 2 tells us that. And of course, that requires God to be at work, shining the light on and revealing himself in the words on the page. So that means that we ought to pray before we read God's word, doesn't it? Help me, Father, to understand. Show me, teach me, apply this to me. But what do you do when you open your Bible and you read and you don't understand? Or what do you do when you, when you pray, asking God to reveal what he's saying to you and you open your Bible and you read and you, and you still don't understand? Well, the answer is you get help. Help that that he's provided. You get someone you can trust to help you, to to explain it to you. This is too important, of course, to just say, well, I don't understand. Let me just close it and let's go to bed or let's let's, let's make the breakfast. Too important for that. We've got to give it its place, don't we? We've got to get God front and central in our lives, so we've got to get his word front and central in our lives. We can't be just saying, oh, well, I tried it, Lord. I'll give you your chance. You had 30 seconds there, and it's all done and dusted. No. You've got to get help. This is where, yeah, the preacher comes in. This is where home, um, home group study comes in, where you can bring something up in front of your fellow church members and, uh, and people that come along and say, yeah, yeah. Do, do, do you understand what this means? I, I'm really struggling with this. Or, 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 or a good study Bible. I have two or three favorites where the notes are from a reliable source, something like this. The ESV study Bible, the Christian Standard Bible study Bible, the Biblical Theology study Bible. This sort of idea. Because there's notes that help you. Because that's a little bit difficult to understand. Now, I understand a lot of it, but there's, just some, there's a bit there and I, I just don't quite get it. You get help. From somewhere you trust. You don't get help from somewhere you don't trust, of course. They'll tell you 
whatever you want to hear, heresy, all sorts of possibilities. That's understanding. Very important. Finally, responding. Responding. The fourth action that's required for God's word to be given its place is responding. It seems in verse 9 that the people, of course, they've gathered, they've heard God's word, they've understood the sense of it and the meaning from the Levites moving around, and their response is, is, is weeping and mourning, we're told. They're weeping and mourning as they hear the words of the law. Why would they respond like that? Well, remember, remember that they have heard from the book of the law of Moses but, but it's not just the book of the law of Moses. No, it's the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Isn't it? When you see that word Lord with four capital letters, you're supposed to think the Lord, that's the God of the covenant. A covenant, of course, where God has rescued his people and then made demands of them in a series of commandments. It's that way around, remember? Rescued first, demands after. And then, of course, Israel has, has broken the covenant and they've broken the commandments and the reason for their exile that these people have just come back from is, is that. But, of course, there is always present tense to this sinning, this breaking of the covenant. Chapter 9 is going to show us that. See, these people hear God's word and they understand and they're convicted and, and, and convicted deeply enough that it causes them to weep and mourn over their sinfulness. That's what's going on here. Here's the law. Here's me. The distance is massive. Weeping and mourning at our sin. But it seems there's a problem with such a response, doesn't it? Notice that Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites tell them not to respond like that. There in verse 9. He said to all the people, this day is holy and to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For the people all wept as they heard the words of the law. Why is that not the right response? Why is that not the right application? Well, it seems that they have to give this day its place. Uh, they say this day is holy to the Lord your God, the leaders. This day being the first day of the seventh month. Because, of course, this is, the, this is the New Year festival. This is Rosh Hashanah, as it's still known today. The day of blasting. The day of the trumpet festival. And the law contains instructions for that particular day. It's one of the big feast days. Uh, listen to Leviticus 23 for the instructions. And the Lord uh, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest. A, a, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. It's a day of rest from work. It's a sacred assembly, but it's a day of celebration, and it's a day of feasting. Go on your way, says Nehemiah. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. The people are to go home, and they're to feast. And the poor are to be looked after, those who haven't got anything ready. This trumpet-sounding celebration is a required response on the first day of the seventh month. And the reason for this response is given there at verse 10. 
for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, because that's, that's because despite their, their, their faithlessness, God has remained faithful. Despite what they deserved, God has continued to help his people. Despite their weakness, God has remained strong. This is an important verse in our Bible, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a wall hanger, as I sometimes refer to. You, people have this on their wall. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Your strength is in the joy of the Lord. Two ways to, to understand this. You see, true security is only found in the Lord God. It's not found in the stability of Western economies, property prices, or the Bank of England. It's not. And also the other side is that cheerful acknowledgement of their dependence on the Lord God is, is going to be a source of strength to his community of believers. It's both of those things. You can be joyful because you have a strong God and you, can, uh, and you can acknowledge your dependence on God and be joyful. You, you, you see? Lord, again, of course, means the God of the covenant. This is not just for everyone who wants to be happy. It's for those who have a covenant commitment to him. Those joined to him in Christ. When sinners see God's gracious hand in their lives, when, when, when he extends his blessing to them, that's a, that's a reason for celebration, isn't it? That's a reason for joy. And we can have joy because God is our strength. For the people, Nehemiah, well, he knows the time for mourning over sin will come. It's about a chapter away. But today, today is a day of rejoicing. What about our response to God's word? How often do we hear God's word, understand, and not think about our response? Mm, it's easy to do that, isn't it? Or to give the wrong response. Because, of course, we're always giving a response. It's a bit like being a witness. Are you, have you been a witness? No, I haven't. Well, you've actually been a bad witness. You, you, you have to always be a witness. You can't be not a witness. You have to always respond because you know what? Doing nothing is a response. You can give the wrong response. That's like looking in a mirror at your face and studying it and not combing your, your, your bed head out of your hair or fixing that running mascara that you saw or taking the chocolate off the corner of your mouth. In fact, it's like forgetting what you look like full stop, which is what James teaches us in James chapter 1. God's word is like a mirror. It requires response. Or the response of putting it off, that's possible, isn't it? We'll, we'll, we'll do that, but we'll just let that slide right down the priority list. And we get, we'll get to it in time. But that's not giving God his place, is it? There's a priority to giving God his place. Better to respond now. Better to respond rightly as he instructs you and prompts you by his Holy Spirit. That's what's going on, you know. That's what's going on. Give him his place. Give his word its, its place. There's the place of gathering, isn't there? There's a the place of hearing. 
The place of understanding and there's the place of responding. It's a privilege that you and I have to possess the words of Scripture. To live under its light as, our, as a lamp to our path. But you've got to give it its place. It shouldn't just be left on the shelf in your house from one end of the week to the other. It shouldn't be read only in part. It's all of God's word on purpose that we need for life and for godliness. It shouldn't be, be read only. It must be turned over in our hearts and in our minds and understanding sought and asked for because it belongs front and center in our worship gathering. We need to hear from it. We need to understand it and with help when it's not plain to us or God is using help to, to gain that understanding that we need. And we need to respond to it. How do you respond now? How will you respond next time an excuse for not gathering presents itself? Or, or how will you respond the next time it's read in church? Are you hungry like these people were? Read the Bible while you preach her. Will you tell us what's going on? Will you show us Christ? Will you do that? Or are you present but not present? Lights on but no one's home. How will you respond to God's word? Because that's how you respond to God himself. Let's pray as we come to our song. Let's pray. Father, there is not one of us who is excellent at this or even very good we are all in need of giving you your place and more fully so in your word in response in taking time to understand in taking time to hear in taking time to gather and we pray for your guidance and your help in this regard. Help us to place you front and center and your word front and center for that how we treat your word is how we treat you. And we ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing from the breaking of the dawn.